0: I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 13. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who preached in London in the late 1800s, he taught pastors how to preach, which I'm sure was a very daunting task for them. Uh, Because he is maybe uh, the greatest preacher outside of the Bible to ever live. Um, You can find his sermons all over the internet. Of course, you can't find them recorded. Uh, The great tragedy was he died just before uh, the technology to begin recording was available. Uh, But Spurgeon used to tell his preachers that they should stay with a text um, and keep working on it and keep looking at it until it broke open. And I really feel like for this morning's text that that's a more recent development than I would have liked, uh, but this is a, a difficult passage. Uh, but even our students sharing about um, their experience of passion has helped me to understand it more. So I hope you'll join me in standing in reverence to God's word as we begin looking at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, who he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he called Baronergus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down for Jerusalem, from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself... For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came out. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brother? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister. And mother, You may be seated. There is a lot here in this text. In some sense, I felt a little bit guilty inflicting that upon the curriculum team. But I have no doubt that they have done well in preparing the lesson for you that will come after the service. With this text, there's so much here... And it would be very easy to take and and preach the calling of his disciples and then preach the section that in your Bible may be labeled as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then there's that little tag-on section at the end where there's this strange interaction between Jesus and the crowd when his mother and his brothers show up and they're going to take him away because he's crazy. And he says, hey, everybody's sitting in here. Or my mothers, my sisters, my brothers. They seem to be all separated. And in some sense, they are all separated as in different events in the life of Jesus. But at the same time, we always must consider when we're reading through the Gospels that our writer has compiled these stories in such a way as to give a message to his readers. So we can never take a a story of Jesus' life, we can never take a a portion of the account of what Jesus did and separate it out of the larger context that we find it in. Uh, People have been doing that for 2,000 years, but it often doesn't end very well. So what is Mark telling us here? What did God inspire Mark? Why did God inspire Mark to take these particular events and put them together, arrange them in such a way? Because obviously we don't understand that as we read the gospels, that we have one thing happening and the next thing has to happen just later. If you were to take that, you might get the impression that Jesus' ministry is like three days instead of three years. So why has the gospel writer arranged them as he had? We need to understand this morning that this text gives us a great example of the proper response that we have to the calling that Jesus places on our life. Jesus calls us and we should respond. As a matter of fact, you may remember as we've looked at multiple times from the Gospel of Mark, God has called us, Christ has called us, and we will respond. But the question remains, how? What is the proper response to Jesus? Depending on your background, depending on your history, depending on what church or denomination you grew up in, you may have some ideas about that that are good, but not the best. You may have some ideas about the proper response to Jesus that are good, but they don't take you all the way. It's one of the great things I fear from the church that I grew up in. I don't know that we were pushed far enough. Now, I know none of you like to be pushed around, I'm sure. But sometimes we need just a little bit of urging. It's something that I wish that I would have gotten when I was younger, a a, a little bit more pushing toward a full view of the proper response to Jesus' call. And I think what will happen as we go through this list, actually we're going to have two lists, my hope is that you find yourself in the first one. But remember that the calling that Jesus has for us is the entire list. It's not just step one. I have five. And I want to promise you that what Christ desires for us, what he desires for you, is that you would go all the way in the proper response to his calling you to be one of his children. And then, of course, we'll look at the end about some ways not to respond. Let's look at the first one as we begin there in verse 13. And he went upon the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Now, this one's easy for you. Because the first part of the response to Jesus Is for Him to desire you. Now you say, well, that has nothing to do with me. You're exactly right. It has nothing to do with you at all. You can't do anything to make Jesus desire you. In fact, everything that you do has the opposite effect. Everything that we do, all of our attempts at being good, all of our attempts at righteousness, what they ultimately do would be to separate us from God. There's this gulf, there's this canyon that we can't cross, and we continue to make that wider and wider every time we do anything. Because here's the reality of sin. Even on your best day, even with your best attempts... At the root of it, when we do not know Christ, the root of even the good things we do is our own selfishness, is our own self-centeredness. Think about that. Even our goodness doesn't get us closer to God. But the good news of that fact is, as he looks at his disciples, he's up there on the mountain. He has called all of these people to come to him. And he had a great crowd who followed him, who had answered the call. And as he is looking at naming this group of men who would become the core group of his disciples, the first thing we see is that he desired them. Friends, the reality for all of us in here is even though the separation between us and God is great, Christ desired us. God the Father desired us and sent His Son so that that gulf that we cannot cross, that expanse between us and God, could be bridged. It's five steps. And the first step, God does for you. It's pretty spectacular, isn't it? The first step in the whole process, the thing that gets everything going, God does for you. He sends His Son because He desired to have a relationship with you. He sent His Son to die in your place because you could never get to God on your own. But He bridges the gap by desiring us. This morning, if if you don't know Christ, if you're going to relate more with this list that I'm going to give you in a few minutes, know this. Even if you've rejected God and turned your back on Him, even if some reason you're here, but you think all of this is silliness and foolishness, God desires you even if nobody else in the world does, even if everyone else in the world has turned their back on you and rejected you, if your family hates you, if all the people you used to call friends hate you, the people at work hate you, the people at school hate you, God desires you. Look at the second thing. Those who He desires, He called. And He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired. So, even though in your text, called is first and desired his second. He had the desire and that made him, that, that, that compelled him to call these disciples. He called to him those whom he desired. If you remember back to last week, the man with the withered hand, what does he say? He says to this man, come here. You know, the man, he's, he's off by himself. He, he has this, this hand that is deformed. He's an outcast. And God looks at him. Jesus looks at him and says, come here. This is what he says right here on the mount. He looks at this, this group that he's going to pick out. He, has, he, he desires that they would become this inner core group of disciples. And so he looks at them and he says, he says, come here. Have they done anything yet? They've not done anything yet, right? We, remember, we have some of these who he has previously called to be a disciple, but, but not all of them have been recorded yet in Mark's Gospel. So we don't know a lot about some of these men. We don't know what kind of relationship they already had with Jesus. But when he desired that they would be a part of his inner circle, he looks at them and he says, Come here. and follow me i've got a greater plan for you than standing in this crowd i've got a greater purpose for you than just walking behind me and and listening to some of the things that i say to this bigger group i i want to i want to take you further i want to teach you more so not only does jesus desire them but then he calls them and that's what he's placed on all of your life and you say well god's never called me well, you messed up that track record because you showed up at church this morning. And this is God's word, and it's calling you. It's calling you to leave your sin. It's calling you to leave your shame. It's causing you to leave that dark place that you are in and follow after the Savior. Now, some of you are sitting there going, well, I'm already a Christian. Some of these guys were already followers. Some of these guys had already been called by Jesus one time. They were already walking along after him. You know, they were there, and they were clapping, and, you know, Peter had already kind of risen to some prominence, and he calls him just the same. He's not calling him for the first time. He's calling him maybe for the hundredth time. But he's calling him to something bigger and better than what he was doing. He's calling him to be more involved. He's calling him to grow closer to Christ. To walk closer with him. He's calling him to do something greater than he had ever done before. Before he was just wandering around with Jesus. But now he's being called to something much more important. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe this this followership of Jesus that you have is just not adequate to what God is calling you to do. Maybe you're not going as far as God is calling you to go. Maybe that's true for all of us. Not maybe. That is true for all of us. We're just not going as far as we could go with Jesus. We're not doing that as a church. We could easily go, and I could find plenty of churches this morning, and I could compare us to them, and we would be superior. We do more outreach, we have more events, we give more to missions, we, we, whatever. But we could also look at the Bible and look at the commitment that they made to Christ and realize we've got a long way to go. See, Jesus just doesn't call us one time, hey, come to me. I think that's the misconception. Because because many of us were brought up with this attitude and and in this mindset in in churches that said, okay, when Jesus says, come to me, he's saying, walk down this aisle and pray with a preacher. He's saying, be baptized and make sure you're in the church pew. That's strange because when I look at this list of men and I look at this calling that Jesus places on their life, I see a list of men who all but one died for their faith. And it's not as if John, who didn't die, he wasn't executed for his faith, but he was exiled on an island. He was was tortured for Christ. So it's not as if he got off any better. And I, I relate this calling with these men to this calling that we have that we should come to the front and sit in a pew, and the two do not add up. When Jesus calls someone, he calls them to pick up their cross and follow him. And this cross that he tells us to pick up, it is, it is not this, this, these burdens that we think we bear. You say, oh, I've, I've got some arthritis in my finger. I'm carrying that cross. Really? Really? Do you know what they did to people on that cross? Where they nailed people there and they bled and died? Where you physically suffocated because you could not lift yourself up to take another breath? But I don't have a lot of money in the bank. But that's the cross I bear. These men were desired by Christ. And he called them And they come. That's the third thing. When Jesus calls you, you come. You don't come with this attitude that I'll follow Jesus as long as it doesn't hurt, I'll follow Jesus as long as it doesn't cause me something uncomfortable. They come to Jesus. Do they ask any questions? Do you read questions here? Well, Lord, where are we going to go? Lord, where are we going to sleep? Lord, how are we going to eat? Lord, how will we make money? Lord, what if our family doesn't like it? Lord, what if it affects my future plans? God, how is your attitude toward our 5 and 10 and 20 year strategic planning models? I know that oftentimes in the Greek language, there is more there than translates into English. But that's not the case here. There's not a bunch of questions that are somehow hidden in the Greek text that just didn't make it into the English. It says here, they came to Him. He called those He desired, and they came to Him. That is our proper response when Jesus calls us is to take away everything that hinders us and follow after Him. I'm reminded of that often because it is so tempting to want to plan for Jesus and and think for Jesus and kind of figure out where Jesus has all of this thing going instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to follow Him. Instead of just admitting that we don't know the future and we don't know what's best, but He does. I don't know how long these men had been following after Jesus, but it was apparently long enough that when He says, hey, come follow Me, they come to Him. In this moment, they're going to be given great responsibility. I'm sure that it was tempting to come back off of that mountain and think that something great had happened to you. Right? Here's this crowd, everybody's following Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus looks out at you and says, hey, come to me. And when you go up on this mountain, it's a, a small group of guys. You might even be looking around you and going, hey, there's Peter. We already know that he's buddy-buddy he's with Jesus. Maybe this is going to be something good. And he, he elevates them to this, this status of being one of the 12, to being one of the core group of his disciples. But do you think they realized in that moment, oh, by the way, this is going to mean that we're all going to die? If they did, what would they have done? Would they have still... Stepped up to the plate and said, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to follow. I don't know. But the reality is, they went. And that's what we need to do. Jesus calls you all the time. But I fear that it's way too easy for us to just say, Not today. Not today. I got asked this week to go and to preach, which I love to do. It's never turned down preaching engagements. I mean that's kind of been my policy. I only done it one time and that was just because I was gonna be gone two weeks in a row from my previous church and, and it just wasn't just wasn't a good thing to do, and so I turned it down only time. The problem was I got invited to go preach love to do it. I want to say yes. Got to get on an airplane. Not as big a fan. You know, last time I flew, a plane had disappeared in Asia. I got back and another plane gets shot down with a missile. Another plane disappears in Asia again. It's not my thing to fly. But guess what? If you want to do mission work, you got to get on an airplane. I mean, you can drive, but some of these places are like seven-day drives. <laughs> Central America is like three weeks, and you go through some countries that are not fun. They don't have roads. It's just part of the calling. I had a pastor friend tell me one time that it, if a Christian doesn't have a passport, you're saying you're not going to international missions. It's the truth, isn't it? You realize they don't let you out of the country without one. And guess what? They really don't let you back in. And after you've been gone for a little while, you really want back in. If Jesus calls you, and he says, Go. And we don't listen. And I'm not saying you, you got to get on a plane and fly, but sometimes, and listen, this happens to me. I'll be sitting at a restaurant, and, 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 and they'll be just impressed upon my heart, God, to, to, to pray for the waitress. And, and just something within me fights it. That's odd. I'm the pastor, right? It shouldn't be a big deal. It's not my personality. So I have to overcome that, and I have to fight it. And I don't always win that battle. When they are called by Jesus, they came to him. Let me move on because there's just so much more to be said. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. Why? So they might be with him. It's the fourth thing. We're desired by Jesus. We're called by Jesus. We must come to Jesus so that we can be with Jesus. This is where I think we're starting to get off track for most Christians. I said there's five. We're to four. That's pretty good. That's over half, but I think it's the two at the end are kind of the biggies. He wanted them to follow after him so that they would be with him. He didn't want them off somewhere else. He didn't want them wandering around on their own. He didn't want them trying to figure it out on their own. He wanted them to be with Him. He had the answers, and they didn't. He had the solutions to the problems, and they didn't. He knew where to go, and they didn't. He knew what was ahead, and they didn't. Guess what? We're in the same boat. Jesus continues to know what is right and wrong, and we often do not. Jesus knows where we're going, and we don't. Jesus has the answers, and they're better than ours. Because we have a lot of answers, right? It's the great thing about sports and politics. Everybody has an opinion. You say, I don't care about politics. Let me say the wrong thing to you, and all of a sudden you care about politics. Everybody has an answer, and everybody has an opinion. And most of the time, with sports and politics, everybody's opinion is truth. It doesn't matter. I say the Panthers are the greatest team ever. Obviously, I know they're not. I'm going to say that anyways. You say somebody else. No, I'm right, and you're wrong. These are not two opinions. I'm correct. You're not. Meet people who are really hardcore Republicans or Democrats. They're right. You're wrong. Doesn't matter if agendas haven't worked or whatever, they're right, you're wrong. But it's the same way with life, isn't it? Isn't that how we treat life? Isn't that how we often treat life with Jesus? We want to say we follow him, we want to say we've come to him, but we still have our opinions and they they are right. And Jesus' opinions on things are fine as long as they align up with ours. You say, well, I would never say that. Well, but that's how we live, isn't it? That's how I live too much. That's how I live way too much. And I'm supposed to be the pastor. I get paid to read the Bible and think about Jesus. He wanted them to follow after him so that they would be with him. That is how we are supposed to live. We are supposed to live with Jesus. We are supposed to be concerned about what He is concerned about. We're supposed to love what He loves. We're supposed to hate what He hates. You say, well, Jesus didn't hate anything. Well, read your Bible a little better. There's some things He hated. And we've grown way too tolerant of it. And there's some things that He loved doing. There's some people He loved to be around. And we are unsure about them. See, we can't follow Him if we're not with Him. When were these disciples with Him? They were with Him when they woke up in the morning. They were with Him as they went through their day. They were with Him when they got ready to go to sleep. They were sleeping in the same room with Jesus. They were with Him all the time. And when they weren't with Him, as we'll see in the last point, they were doing something that He had sent them to do. There was no other time. There was no other place. As a matter of fact, the moment of their greatest shame in the New Testament is when they weren't with him. When Jesus was arrested and tried and beaten and killed was the low point for his disciples. But they weren't with him. Are you living with Jesus? Half the time, I don't feel like I am. I'm doing my thing. I'm going my direction. I'm having to deal with being a professional Christian and trying to figure all of that out, and it's a struggle. He wanted them to be with him. That's what he wants for you. And then lastly, as I said a minute ago, they were desired by him. He called them. They responded. They came to him so they could be with him. And then lastly, he says here, so that they might be with him, this is the end of verse 14, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. When were they not with Jesus? And they really, it's not as if they weren't with him then. It's when they're sent out. This word, this... This is where we miss the mark. This is the big place. This is the place that we miss the mark as Christians, but this is the place where God is most effective in using us. We can respond to Jesus. Some people even do a really good job of living with Jesus. They live in his word, they're in prayer, but but the end of that living with Jesus is being sent out. It's in going. It's in responding to the fact that God desired you and called you and you responded and you've been living with Him. He has been changing your heart. He's been transforming your mind. And now you're to go back out. Because guess what? There's a world full of people that God desires to save in Christ. A world full. There's unreached people groups like our young people had the chance to affect in their giving. There's people that live outside of this door. I mean, you can open up this door and see their house. And they don't know Christ. And the reality is that if they don't ever understand that He desires them and has called them and respond to that call, they have no hope, they have no future. They have nothing ahead of them but darkness and destruction. And they're right here. And they're in South America and Central America and Asia and Africa and Europe. They live in Australia and in New York City and in Los Angeles and in Austria and in Russia. They live all over. And they live in Eicherdon. And we have been called by him to be sent back out. You want to know what that looks like? You want to know what Jesus thought about when he sent them out? Go to the book of Acts. Read it all the way through and you'll see what they did in responding to this call that Jesus had on them. This call that Jesus had placed upon their life. They went out and radically changed the world. You are sitting here today because of the ministry of these disciples. Because it was for freedom to worship this Jesus that people came to this place and established a country here for us to live in freedom to worship. It wasn't just because they wanted to be free. It's because they wanted to be free to worship Christ. quickly and I'll be done. I want to go through these others. Those are our proper response to Jesus. But there is another response. You can respond another way. An improper response to Jesus, if you will. And and we see this happen first in verse 21. He is speaking and this crowd is so great that his disciples can't even eat. That's how packed in it is. Now I don't know about you, I didn't have breakfast this morning. I imagine the room would have to be pretty tight for me not to be able to get my hand to my mouth. Not a lot of space here. And I'm a professional at it. 31 years, I'm very good at eating. But the room is so packed and so filled that they can't even get in. They, they can't even, n- nobody can get in, nobody can get there, they can't even raise their hand to their mouth. It's, it's that tight. And Jesus' family comes. Look, and verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is uh, is out of his mind. Jesus' mama, everybody loves to give her all this credit. She did a lot of good stuff. The Catholics maybe give her a little more credit than they should. She thought Jesus was crazy. That's not me. That's what the Bible's saying. Jesus' mother and his brothers go, and they think he's crazy. The first thing, the first improper response to Jesus' message and Jesus' call is to dismiss it because it's crazy. You say, well, that doesn't seem to be as nice form-fitting as the first ones, but is that not what most of the world does in response to Jesus? Now think about this. When you come to Christ, you are affirming that God brought a man back from the dead after three days. You are affirming that that same man was able to walk on water, was able to feed 5,000, was able to raise other people from the dead, was able to heal those who were blind, was able to take a man's withered hand and make it whole again. You are affirming that. 1 Corinthians says that the good news of the cross, that God would save someone through through a rugged, bloody, nasty cross. 1 Corinthians says that's foolishness to those who are perishing. Jesus' mother and his brothers knew he was just a simple Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, and now he is here and he's got all these crowds. He must be crazy. He's out of his mind. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. It's still thought of as crazy. It's still thought of as ridiculous. How could this have happened? How could a God speak out of nothing and create the world? How could a man come from heaven, born in a manger, raised perfect, and die on a cross? How could he be raised on the third day? It's an improper response second beginning of verse 22 the, the scribes come from jerusalem and they they accuse jesus now this this one is you know as if jesus is not crazy enough according to his mother he's accused of being possessed by the devil and as he is possessed by the devil he is casting out other demons from people who are possessed you know, by demons by the devil So, him possessed by a demon is casting out other demons. That's the accusation. What they do is accuse Jesus of something that is sinful. But Jesus responds to them in only the way that Jesus can in using these parables. I'd like to note that there is a hint of sarcasm here as well. Something you have to be careful with because you're not Jesus. But he does it rather well. He says first... How can Satan cast out Satan? That's his question. That seems kind of odd, right? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In other words, what they're accusing him of is being a part of the kingdom of darkness, but fighting against the kingdom of darkness. And he says, well, if that's the case, how's the kingdom of darkness going to survive? He says, next, if Verse 25, and a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But this this is where he hits the, hits at home on this last one. But, this is verse 27, no one can enter in a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. In that parable, Jesus is the thief. It's interesting. Jesus is the thief. And he breaks into this guy's house. He beats him up. He ties him up. He steals his stuff. There's your picture of Jesus meek and mild. Breaking into people's houses and beating people up that's what he does and that's exactly what he's done jesus said i've broke into satan's house he's a strong dude he's not easy to overcome but i'm beating him up and i'm gonna tie him up and i'm gonna take his stuff and you know what his stuff is it's you it's you that I'm breaking into this world where Satan has had a foothold, where Satan has been control, in control, where he's been the strong man, and I'm going to beat him up, and I'm going to tie him up, and I'm going to take you back. I think there's a little sarcasm, a uh, note of humor there, but then Jesus gets serious. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, anything can be forgiven. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they're saying he has an unclean spirit. He says, you can't be forgiven when you think what Jesus is doing is evil when you attribute the work of Christ to evil, how can you be forgiven? How can you be forgiven? I don't, I don't, the forgiveness can't come. As long as you are actively attributing what Jesus has done and Jesus is doing in the hearts and lives of people, as long as you attribute it to evil, there's no forgiveness there. Now, I want to tell you, had a lot of people in my life who have been concerned that somehow they have broken this this unpardonable eternal sin. Unless you're showing up here believing that what Jesus has done on the cross for you is evil, it's not something you've got to worry about. But there's a world full of people who believe that Christianity is evil because of whatever their reasoning is, and there's no forgiveness offered to them. So, dismissal saying that it's crazy, calling it evil, and then here's the last one. Improper response to Jesus, and his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called and a crowd was sitting around them and they said to him your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you why did they come we'll go back to verse 21 why did they come they came to seize him they wanted to stop what he was doing not only did they think he was crazy but they wanted to stop it that's the third improper response to the message and the calling of jesus is to try to stop it. I want us to be very careful here. Because the first one, thinking it's crazy, church folks don't normally do that. Second one, thinking it's evil, church folks don't normally try to do that. The third one, attempt to stop it, happens in churches every day. I guarantee you if we left these doors and could visit every church there is in America it's happening at this exact moment. Someone is doing something to try to stop the movement and the work of Christ. I've watched it happen. And it's frightening to think that someone called by God, this is these are his This is his mother, and these are his brothers. If you remember very clearly, it is his mother who is with him as he dies. It is his brother James who would be one who would be a leader in the church. So they come to faith. They understand that. But in this moment, they're trying to stop what is happening. The world's doing that. We can see that. You can look and see it. You can look and see how different people and different organizations in the world are trying to inhibit the spreading of the gospel. We see that, but let's be careful that we never do that in the church. See it'd be easy to take what we saw with the with the, the young people going to passion. And different people would have criticisms of that. I'm not saying any of you. I'm saying that Christians in general could look at that whether music was too loud. Well, if it's too loud, what's the response? You're too old. Good, see? That's great. You understand that. If you don't want to be old, don't ever think it's too loud. Some people may look at that and say, you know what, I don't particularly agree with this preacher's stance on this. He probably doesn't agree with your stance on it. See, now you're even. It's easy to look around and see what is going on and be critical. I I used to always be bothered about this at at our local pastor's conference before I moved here. And and one guy would be sitting there, and he would be sharing about how three people had been saved in his service. and, And I was in there going, man, that's great. And it would never fail that somebody had to have gotten more people saved than him. They're just making people up. Three imaginary friends got saved. I mean, I know those are Baptist numbers, but we still have to be cautious. It's making people up. Let's never be found guilty of inhibiting the work of Christ. I think Mary, Jesus' brothers, they probably had a good heart. They didn't want to see Jesus embarrassed. They didn't Whatever it was, they were coming, but they were trying to stop what he was doing. And we must be cautious of that. So Jesus calls us, and there is a proper response, and there is an improper response. And how should we respond? What should we do? What should be our overarching goal in responding to Christ? He gives that to us as we finish. He looks at everybody and he says, well, who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those sitting around him, he, he said, here are my mother and brothers. And here's the key, verse 35. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. God's will is that we would understand that he desires us and has called us. His will is that we would come to him and be with him and be sent out by him. Don't fool with this other stuff. You don't want to even go there. You don't want to be found guilty of those things. You don't want to be a part of those things. You Just just forget about them. Because the one who comes to Jesus and stays with Jesus and is sent out by Jesus doesn't have to worry about thinking it's crazy. They don't have to worry about attributing it to evil. They don't have to worry about stopping the work of Christ because they are the work of Christ. I would encourage you this morning where are you at on here? Unlike school, you don't have to start at zero, because there is no zero. And you get the first two on a list of five right. You're up to 40% already. God desires you regardless of whether you want him to or not, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how much you you hate God and you hate religion and you hate Christianity and you hate everybody around you. And maybe that's not you, but, but maybe it is. But then he calls on you to respond. Think about it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to initiate anything. He's already initiated it. He's already told you from his word this morning. I desire you, come to me. you say, well, pastor, I've been down the aisle and I've been through the baptistry and I've occupied this pew or for the first three rows, this chair for a significant amount of time. That's great. Sounds like you're really doing good on number three. What about number four? about living with jesus what about being with him when you wake up and as you go through your day and as you close out your day i'm not talking about you got to have your bible sitting there open all the time your eyes are always closed because you're you're praying all the time but just in your life and your experience and in your heart you're living with jesus all the time you say well pastor i've got that down great then let's go Because the outflow of number four, if you say number four is true in my life, number four is is where I'm at. I'm living with Jesus. The response is to go. Because he has sent us out. He sent us out to the world. He sent us out to our community. He sent us out to our state and our country. He sent us out in our giving. He has sent us out in our, our physical where we are he sent us out and who we talk to and how we talk to them and what we share with them he has sent us out where are you at this morning there's not a lot of gray areas in these there's, there's not a lot of 4.5 or I'm at 3.2 we know where we're at now we need to go where Christ has called us to go but if you don't know him this morning, he is desiring you. He is calling you. Don't let it pass you by. There are some of you who have sat here as I have preached for two years knowing that you need to respond to Jesus and you've never done so. I'm not putting you on the spot. I want to tell you that I understand the urgency of it, and I hope you do as well. Because think of how privileged you are that you get to hear the gospel week in and week out, and there's billions of people who have never heard Realize that one day, God may very well close the door on you hearing the gospel and open it somewhere else. Respond now, because he's calling you, and he desired you enough to send his son to die in your place. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are beyond grateful that you desire us and call us. God, we're unworthy of it. God, I would just ask that you would you would show us your love and grace right now that wherever we find ourselves, God, wherever we are, whatever we are doing, wherever we are at, that you would just speak into our heart and help us to know you more. God, help us to grow in our faith to grow in our understanding of the relationship that we have with you. Help us to to know you better. Help us to live with you more. God, help us to respond better to your call. Lord, I know there are those who are sitting here this morning and don't know you. God, I pray that you would speak to their heart. That you would call them to yourself. God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you've done, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we get ready to sing. You've heard the invitation from God's Word. I just pray this morning that you would respond, not just in this time, but when we leave here. As always, if you're uncomfortable responding during this time, find me after. And let's talk about what God has spoken to your heart. Would you respond to his word as we sing this morning?